Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, big money for your agency's workspace might be hard to spend. And the future of federal cyber leadership. It's Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs shows almost 500 incidents, including partial and complete outages with its electronic health record system since the agency launched it about two years ago. Analysis of data FedScoop received through a FOIA request from VA shows more than 40 hours the system was completely down. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough says more rollouts are on hold until sometime in 2023. A new draft of the Artificial Intelligence Risk Management Frameworks out from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. A NIST spokesperson tells FedScoop the draft includes more details on developing trustworthy and responsible AI systems. The agency plans to release the official version 1.0 of the framework in January of next year. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is coming in two days. This coming Wednesday, the DOD CIO John Sherman and the DHS CIO Eric Heisen are just two of the high-level leaders in government and industry you'll see there. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration has seven potential challenges in using the money it'll get for real estate through the infrastructure bill, according to the agency's inspector general. But those seven challenges could turn out to be opportunities for the public building service. Dan Matthews is head of federal sales for WeWork. He's former commissioner of the PBS at GSA. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Here's a quick tour through these seven uh, potential challenges that the IG lists. Ensuring the effective stewardship of taxpayer funds, addressing the need for qualified project managers and contracting officers, providing effective oversight of construction management contractors, managing potential project delays and cost overruns, preparing and maintaining complete and accurate documentation, awarding effective construction contracts, safeguarding LPOE access. It sounds to me like this is not a list of things that could potentially set someone's hair on fire. They're just things that one should keep in mind as PBS goes about the general business of doing its business. Am I reading this right, Dan? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Great to be here. And and, and yes, I think you are reading it right. Bottom line, it's a great opportunity for GSA. Congress uh, appropriated $3.4 billion for border stations, land ports of entry. And that's what this report was about. And then after this report came out, Congress appropriated another $3.3 billion for greening of inventory. So GSA got a big slug of money, um, which is important because they probably have capital liabilities that are more than $20 billion. So, you know, this is, a, is helpful. It's not going to get them completely there. And what they need to do now really is to take this opportunity to realign their portfolio in a way that improves their core assets, raises quality and makes them more profitable for the future. How would you in that spot make sure that you maximize that opportunity as you just discussed? So there's two big challenges. Time is money, particularly now, right? This is an inflationary environment. Makes it very difficult to deliver some of these projects on budget. The big goal is to deliver the scope of these projects with the amount of funding that was appropriated. And that's difficult for a couple of reasons. One, when Congress picked the amount of money to appropriate them, those are based on some, I don't want to call them back of the envelope estimates, but sort of. 
And they're also a bit old. So the numbers coming out of the gate are probably disconnected from the reality of what it costs to deliver those projects. So speed is really important. They can't take forever to get these projects delivered or they will go over budget. The other thing is staffing. Uh, and, and the IG report mentioned that. I was actually a little surprised to see that uh, the IG report mentioned that some of their staffing in this area has actually gone, gone down. Uh, we made uh, a concerted effort when I was there to try and raise the staffing in certain places. So that that's a challenge. Uh, you need quality people to be able to deliver these big projects. And, and some of these are hundreds of millions of dollars. And that takes experience. And so they're going to have to realign resources internally to do that. The inflationary piece of this is fascinating to me because as I listen to uh, business media and and hear about where the prices of raw materials are going, lumber and so on, they're coming way down. Like the that the the raw materials piece of this is not where it looks like the inflationary trend will go. The inflationary trend is for people, for the humans that are going to go out and actually build these things. And that's what the contractors, I imagine, that GSA will rely on to build these facilities and any other facilities that they're building for the foreseeable future. That's going to be the hard part for the contractor to estimate when they bid on these jobs. Exactly. The contractor estimating in an area of tremendous uncertainty. It's hard to do for big projects that will take you know, several years to deliver. These border stations are a combination of buildings, but also roads and bridges. And and they're like building almost little towns uh, in some remote locations. So difficult for contractors to estimate in an uncertain environment. And when they when they're in those situations, right, they they add they add risk premiums to it. And that's one thing that GSA I think is going to need to do. They're going to need to have probably a healthier contingency fund set aside. Um, than they probably would have had to do in the past. We had a similar situation like this. Uh, when we came into office, Congress had appropriated about um, a little under $2 billion for a whole bunch of courthouses. And we went through a very rapid process of scoping those out and getting those projects awarded, put aside a, a certain percentage for contingency funds. That probably will need to be better, or larger that is, in order to to, to cover those shortfalls. So you answered what was going to be my noob question, which is how much flexibility and where does the flexibility exist, if at all, for the kinds of differentials that one sees in, in a project like this that takes time. And, you, you know, you, you got somebody writing an estimate, right, writing a bid today for something that may not be delivered for two, three, five years. So they had a risk premium. That's what happens. And um, a lot of inflation has taken place since Congress appropriated that money and since those original GSA estimates and putting, you know, putting together their five-year plan for these border stations, that was several years ago. So there's been a lot of movement on pricing since that happened. Uh, so I, this is where I think GSA has a, has a challenge. And maybe this most recent $3.3 billion of appropriations that just came out in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, hopefully there's enough flexibility in there for GSA to take some of those funds and put them towards some of these other projects uh, on the border where they're probably coming out of the gate under-resourced for the scope that they're trying to deliver. Uh, among those seven challenges that the inspector general lays out, we'll put a, a link to the IG report in the show notes, the daily scoop podcast.com uh, among those seven challenges, Dan, is there one that is potentially more difficult or maybe provides a bigger opportunity than the others for PBS? Well, I think the 
the, the big opportunity is having this capital infusion. Uh, if you think about where GSA is coming out of a pandemic, usage of federal property has really changed, particularly in the office space environment. So they're looking at reductions in office space, but this money is directed towards border stations, which is a core asset. They're not going anywhere, um, but they're also in pretty bad condition. So this gives GSA an opportunity to really shore up their financial solvency with a really important uh, core asset class, border stations. Um, a few years ago, you know, we delivered a lot of courthouses, another long-term commitment, federal government, you know, they don't move from courthouses. That's a core asset for GSA. And those asset classes, they really need to get them into better condition. So frankly, they can charge the rents that they need to, to keep that whole operation going. They're supposed to operate like a business. They charge rent, it has to cover their expenses, plus all their capital investment. So that's really, I think, the huge opportunity. The office space, in a way, is probably a little bit more of a challenge because the demand equation is all over the map for them. A lot of uncertainty agencies are probably going to be handing back space. So really important, you know, uh, really stabilize your core assets so they, they can weather some change and uncertainty with the office space class. Dan Matthews, great insight as always. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be here, Francis. You can read that IG report and more about the future of the federal footprint in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices until September 30th. We'll announce the 2022 winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency should break out of the Department of Homeland Security, according to its former leader. CyberScoop reports Chris Krebs says the agency would be more effective on its own. Karen Evans is partner at KENT Partners. She's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Karen, thanks for coming on the program. You saw this up close and personal at the Department of Homeland Security. What in your mind does an independent CISA look like at some future point? Welcome. Well, first, thank you for having me, Francis. And you're right, I, I did see it up close and personal. I don't know that I'm necessarily against CISA breaking out, right? I read the article, I saw the pros and cons of what everybody was saying. And, and it just reminded me of the same discussion that we had after 9-11 about forming a new department called Department of Homeland Security and what pieces should go in there and how those authorities should be structured. I think CISA has a lot of authorities, but those authorities also are joint with the Secretary of Homeland Security. So I, that comes out in that article about how the Secretary of Homeland Security has uh, certain authorities across the board on critical infrastructure. And I think the other thing that came out in that article is cyber is pervasive across everything. And, and that's why all the critical infrastructure, everything that you have to do, which is a holistic approach at Homeland Security to pull a piece out of it might make it more difficult to have that holistic approach when they're really trying to do now, think about the National Risk Management Center. That's within CISA, 
but it's actually looking at everything across the board for the nation. If you pull that out, how would they really be able to do the analytics and get the attention of everybody that they need to get when they're working across the board, across all those sectors, if some of the other authorities are still over there with the Secretary of Homeland Security? So I'm not against it. I think you have to think about how you would actually do it so that it could be successful. All right, let's do that then. Let's think through the pros and cons. You've listed one of the potential cons. I think Chris Krebs, in his statement here that uh, my colleague Suzanne Smalley writes about on CyberScoop, is one of the potential pros. He said, instead of going to five or six different agencies, make the front door clearly visible. And as I see it, that's CISA. Um, That's a challenge that you probably experienced uh, as a federal information technology practitioner over your career. It's a challenge that CIOs talk about and CISOs talk about on an ongoing basis. Who exactly owns what? It's something the Cyberspace Solarium Commission addressed in the work that they did. Who's got what portfolio? Who has autonomy over what? And it strikes me, again, there's a lot of things that would have to happen between here and there, but there looks like one door, as Chris uh, talks about, to walk through. Well, the one door to walk through, again, is is in theory and in practice, two different things, right? So it does make sense if if I'm a critical infrastructure owner, right? And, and after 9-11, we identified uh, what we call Section 9 companies, right, that go through, and these are all critical operators. And while I was back in government, we were working on an effort called the tri-sector work, which uh, actually affected both finance, electric, and communications, right? So that's not surprising. You have to have money, you have to have power, and you need to be able to talk to people no matter what's happening, in, even in your own house. Those are the three things that, that you look at, right? So if you, you look at that, um, it makes sense when Chris is saying, hey, CISA should be that one stop, like you contact them initially. What then has to happen is on the back end of that, then CISA has to have the relationships. And this is where you hear about the confusion. This is the part that you hear where the government will say, we do the whole of government approach. And that's our answer when we're saying, hey, we're, we're actually doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And there could be like at your family where you argue a lot behind the scenes, but when you talk out in public, you're one family. That's, that's the whole of government approach. There are a lot, and, and I'm not the first guest here that'll talk about all the different authorities that line up, but, but CISA, in theory, and it has always been since the inception, that that would be the one door that you should go through, and they should have the relationships back with the rest of the government in order to get you a solution. In practice, that's not what's working. And what happens is, especially in cyber, you work with people who you trust. So InfoGuard's been out there forever for the FBI's program. So people who have a good InfoGuard chapter and a good FBI office locally are gonna call the FBI first because they're not sure wow, is this really a cyber piece or is this a law enforcement piece? And and a company's not necessarily supposed to really know the difference. They just know, hey, I need to get help from the federal government. 
I saw this when we were in the energy sector, when I was over at Department of Energy, we are the sector risk management agency. That means we're the first point of contact for the energy companies who then we have to work the relationships between CISA and then the FBI. And so that's what the coordinating councils are doing. Some of them work really well. Some of them um, are not as mature. And I think that's, that's part of the point that Chris is making. But I am going to go a step even deeper <clears throat> into this. I think uh, I'm going to bring Congress in. I think that if you really want CISA to do this, what you have to do is get rid of the national security exemptions that everybody has. That's where if you look at all the laws that pass, if you look at every and the law enforcement piece, when you look at it, you saw a little bit of it play out this past year when the FBI publicly said that they weren't in support of this one piece of legislation that was going to give system more authorities that would actually enable this one door that Chris is talking about. They publicly came out and said no, because they said it was going to infringe on their law enforcement authorities. So until you, until we get, hey, information, it's about information and that we manage the information based on the risk. So it's law enforcement information versus intelligence information, but CISA can provide, hey, this is how you have to construct like a zero trust architecture. This is how you have to construct these things and then add that delta on that needs more security because of law enforcement and intelligence. If you don't reconcile that core issue, then you're always going to have what you saw in that article. All right. Walk me through the your energy department experience at CSER and how that fit into the broader federal government cyber infrastructure. Like, where, what's the org chart look like? Because I think that's the source of a lot of confusion among people, is who reports to what, who knows what, how does that information that each individual organization knows get shared with other organizations that need to know it, who decides who needs to know what, all of that kind of stuff. Well, and I... I'd like to think, and it's, it's, I, you know, rest on the shoulders of several that went ahead of me that set this up, and I had the opportunity to work there for two years um, and work with it, is uh, there is a lot of understanding between the energy companies themselves. They, they work really closely together. They have their playbooks. They're organized. And when you talk about public-private partnership in the energy sector, you truly see public-private partnership. So that that's the huge key to success right there, right? And then they rely on the energy department to make sure the outreach and the information then transcends the way that it's supposed to, to the National Security Council with DHS, right? Um, because DHS and energy are joined at the hip. And uh, they ran those coordinating councils jointly with us. But if you pull all that away, it still is based on uh, the authorities. And the Secretary of Energy has specific authorities that, as it relates to the grid and cyber. And because of those authorities, we were putting that structure in place, but also then utilizing the authorities that DHS has. And the big key to the success is DHS got authorities uh, in their authorization act. So you know how like the government, if they're going to meet with private sector, you have to do, you have to announce it in the federal register. You see a lot of this, um, the way that NIST 
fronts, right? And how there's a lot of transparency on this. Authorities were given to DHS. They were given to DHS, not to CISA. They are DHS's authorities that allow them to convene private sector in order to be able to have this discussion and have the information sharing so that, um, you know, you can really build those relationships. And, and again, so I'm back to, there would be a lot that would have to happen. And I think that's why the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was saying, hey, five years down the road from now, um, if you really think about the building blocks that you need, to your point, what do you really want to accomplish when you pull them out? Now, we used to be, when I was at OMB, we used to argue, no, 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 everything has to be integrated in. This is why it has to stay with the CIO. This is why, um, you know, the budget, all these things so that it was all integrated in. And if you ripped it out, you, you would end up bolting cybersecurity on at the end and it would cost more. I think that problem now has been solved with uh, the establishment of the Office of the National Sovereign Coordinator, who then is in the White House, who now has a deputy that is from OMB. So you can have that full life cycle. And if you really did want to pull some things out, it still is going to connect because you have the National Sovereign Security Directorate. So my sense is, Karen, you just laid out a lot of different pieces there, and, and I really appreciate that the, the explanation, the delineation. Let's clean sheet it. We're going to start completely from scratch, and we're going to try to address the problem, the challenge that we have in 2022, and consider what the challenge, the problem might be in 2030, say. What would you advocate building from scratch rather than we have this, so we'll use this thing that we already have, which strikes me as part of the reason that we got to where we, we are today. And I'm glad you asked that because there's a lot of lessons learned from what we've done in the past and, and how to clean slate it. If I were gonna clean slate it and, and, and taking the capabilities and saying that CISA is there, not like looking at, ooh, I'm gonna restructure CISA. No, we're starting like, completely from scratch, you, Karen. You, you look at this, I really do think that there should be um, an operational center that actually looks at all the civilian networks and it should be managed. Uh, and, and if it's okay, I'm gonna have components and the component organizations, you know, our department's fine. But the way that the authorities are set up, and if you really want to be able to give the answer to the National Security Council, and if the National Cybersecurity uh, Director has to have uh, certain visibilities to be able to look at the nation as a whole, to be able to talk to all the private sector folks, then we have to have a centralized operational capability that allows for that information to come in and then for us to be able to do analysis across multiple sectors with our private sector partners, because we have certain amount of information that's going to give them context so that they can then say, oh, this thing is really important just because I'm seeing a million of this. It's absolutely nothing. So let that one go. But this one thing that was buried the needle among needles. Now the government's given me context around it. I got to fix this. Until we get to that capability, now we're we're getting there. You're seeing pieces of it, like with the JCDC and those types of things going forward. Um, I really think that people have to give up, you know, for lack of a better term, their cheese, 
and we have to make this operational center work. And then the rest of the stuff would flow down from there. It's great insight as always. Thanks very much for coming on the program, Karen. Lots to think about there. Well, thank you. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk about what if. You can read more about Chris Krebs's comments about DHS and CISA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Tuesday. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.